This morning I want to look at something that I think is very important. I think that we find in this epistle to uh, the brother Timothy. Uh, Again, reading that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 11. That is the primary text that we will be in this morning. 1 Timothy 1.11 where Paul says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Before we get there, in July of 1741, so yes, several hundred years ago, it saw perhaps uh, the publication of probably the most famous sermon uh, from the most famous American theologian of all time. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He was preaching in Enfield, Connecticut, about five hours from where we are right now, and he preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is remembered and it is a timeless sermon, but I think perhaps sometimes it's greatly misunderstood. You see the title of that sermon, you see the fact that God is angry with you, and many times I think people have determined that that's all who God is. God is an angry person. He's mad, and more than that though, he's mad at me. With that type of message... Uh, I don't think it's uh, a surprise to see people uh, leaving the church or being afraid of the church. But I actually think that's an unfair treatment of that sermon. But for better or worse, this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is famous and widely recognized. But I think also is misremembered. And I think it leads to that question. The question is, is that really who God is? Is God really mad at us? Is God angry with us or is he happy with us? When you think about God, how do you imagine him acting towards you? What is his character towards you? What is God's uh, thoughts towards you? Or even, let's put it even further. What is God's character towards you when you mess up? Or what is God's character towards you when you succeed? And is there a difference between the two? Because if there is, if there's a big difference, then I think we have the wrong perception of who our God is. This morning, quickly, in the time that we have remaining, I only have two points this morning. That doesn't mean I'm going to be short, because long-windedness is in my genes. I can blame my dad and my grandfather for it. It's genetic, so it's okay. You can blame them, you can text them later. But I hope you'll listen carefully this morning. Because I'd like to speak to this dilemma. The dilemma of the happy fatherhood of God. And actually prove to you that you do serve this morning. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior this morning. You serve and you live for a happy heavenly father. First of all quickly. I want to dispel a common misconception for you. A common misconception is the fact that God is grumpy. There's this misconception, I think, that we have determined, perhaps by sermons by Jonathan Edwards unfairly, but there's this inbred hatred towards God. Most think that he's like a lion, ready to pounce on them. He's just waiting for them to mess up. Just run wrong move, and God is going to pounce on us and get us in line, get us in shape. And that's the perception many have of God, that he's just hemming them in. He doesn't really care about you and your feelings and your happiness. God is just trying to keep you in line. He's sort of seen as a divine buzzkill or some sort of joy thief or happiness robber. And that's who God is. 
And I, I think you can see that most clearly whenever God, the figure of God, is portrayed in pop culture. When he's in movies or TV shows or cartoons or whatever, he's always this grumpy, gray, old, gray-haired old man who's just kind of mad at everything. And I think that is belies sort of our misconceptions about who God is. But that is not our God. That is not the God of the Bible. And two more things. Two quick other misconceptions I want to dispel for you. And now this might seem odd to do on a day like today. Father's Day. But another way that God is, that we have misconceived God is God is not your dad. God is not your dad. Again, that's odd to say on Father's Day. But as much as I love and as much as I cherish, as much as I hope to honor and, and reverence my dad, I do know also it's safe to say that my dad would make a terrible God. I've seen the worst in my dad's. I've seen uh, their, sometimes their tempers. Or I've seen my dad in his uh, impatience. I've seen my dad in his uh, depression. I've seen my dad in his frustration. I've also seen my dad in his love. My dad in his sacrifice. My dad in his devotion. The point is, he has had seasons of both. He has seasons of uh, deep um, impatience and seasons of deep grace. And that's sort of the opposite of our Heavenly Father. Because with Him, as it says in James chapter 1.17, there is no variableness of character. Let me read that verse for you quickly in James 1. Because it's important to see what James is saying here. James 1.17 declares for us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. With God there is no change in disposition towards you. There's no seasons in which his feelings towards you fluctuate. His love for you doesn't, uh, isn't based on your circumstances. It isn't based on your feelings. It doesn't change with how he feels towards you. God's love is based on Jesus Christ. Which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As it says in Hebrews 13. His love for you is in his son. That is something that cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It doesn't fluctuate. God doesn't change his mind about you. He doesn't uh, get frustrated with his investment. <laughs> when he, God sent his son to the cross, he knew exactly what he was buying. He was buying uh, broken, fallible people. He knew what he was buying. And when God took to the cross, he knew exactly what he was sacrificing his life for. God is not your dad. But also, secondly, another misconception is God is not Santa Claus. Now this might seem silly to bring up Santa in June. Uh, but we can have Christmas in June just like some people have Christmas in July. But I think it's important that we say this. that Because I think it's, it's interesting that as Santa Claus has become this uh, cultural and commercial icon, he's become also nearly godlike. And in fact, in some ways, I think we have sometimes unknowingly attributed Santa's characteristics onto God himself. No, but that's not our God. God doesn't, uh, he's not sitting up in heaven, keeping a heavenly naughty or nice list from which to give grace to the good people and condemnation to the bad people. 
Yeah, I think sometimes we may function that way. Sometimes we may live that way on a daily basis. Uh, and sometimes we uh, find ourselves uh, worshiping some sort of Santa God. Even if we don't come right out and believe it. Or say that we believe it. Sometimes I think we think, if I can just do enough good things, if I can just be nice enough, if I can just be good enough, then this heavenly Kris Kringle will come through for me and give me gifts, give me blessings, or work this thing out in my life. If I can just do something good enough, just be nice enough to this some such person. But if that's the case, then we better not mess up or we're going to get something much worse than coal in our stockings. But again, this is not how God operates. God doesn't operate according to a heavenly naughty or nice list. He doesn't judge us or reward us on the measure or the merit of what we have done on our performance. That would be bad news. That would be not good news. That would be the opposite of the gospel. That's because God's economy isn't a system in which you can do certain things. You can just check certain boxes and get God to come through for you. That's not how God operates. Actually, if you believe that, that's not the gospel. That's what we would call karma. I think it's sometimes in my, I've noticed this as I've been in church my whole life. It is interesting how deceptive karmic Christianity, I like to say, is in the church. That if, if I do a certain thing, God will come through for me. If I just put it forward, put enough good works forward, God will have to be gracious to me. God will have to be favoring on my life. He will have to work this certain thing out. That's karma. And it's kind of, we get sucked into that. It's kind of deceptive. It's kind of like this good day, bad day kind of whirlwind, right? You know, on our good days, we wake up at like 5 a.m. We're ahead of the game. We have a nice, you know... Very healthy breakfast, black coffee with egg whites and whole wheat toast. We're just super on it. We are just on fire. We get up and we are so on fire that we decide to go into work early. And we make it there early. We bypass all the traffic. We don't have to worry about it. And we have a great day. And then at the end of the day, we have a great day of work. And at the end of the day, we are fine and we're driving home. And we have to go make a grocery store stop. And we go there and it's fine. We don't run into any problems. And in fact, we are feeling so happy that we even witness to the cashier. And we give them a gospel tract. And then we go home and dinner is already made for us. And we go home and we have a great evening. Our kids don't uh, whine when it's time for bed. They don't throw a tantrum when you tell them that it's time to uh, end their day and go to sleep. And you have a great day. Now, opposite of that, we might have a bad day. You miss your alarm. You don't have time for your whole wheat and egg white breakfast. So you have to make a Pop-Tart. And you don't have time for Starbucks. So you go to work and you have to make uh, some sort of instant coffee or something that doesn't taste quite as good. And you're late for work, so your boss reprimands you. And that doesn't feel good, so you have a terrible day. And then on your way to the grocery store after work, you have a flat tire, and that puts you behind. And so you get home, and dinner is cold, so you have to warm it up again in the microwave. And you've had a bad day. On top of that, your kid throws a tantrum because their playtime is over. (laughs) Now, which day 
Is God more pleased with you? Is it on the day where you are happy enough to give a gospel tract to someone? Or is it on the day where you got so frustrated that you were cursing under your breath because your tire uh, busted on the side of the road? Is God more pleased with you on one day over the other? Is God's love for you greater on the good day than the bad day? If you think that it is, that's karma. That's saying that we can fundamentally change how God favors us. If you believe that your eternal destiny is dependent upon your spiritual performance, you don't believe in God, you believe in karma. You believe in the fact that you can change your eternal destiny based on what you do. But the good news of this Bible is the fact that on our good days and our bad days, God's love for us is exactly the same. It's the same as, again, as I said in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves us the same. And nothing, as Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, nothing, nothing can separate us from that love. And in fact, if you look at our text, verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. In all that God is for us, He is this. Look at verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the God who loves us eternally. This is our God. He's not a God of karma who rewards the good people with blessings and he punishes the bad people with condemnation. Our God is a God of grace because he gives everyone the opposite of what they deserve. He gives everyone the opposite of what they deserve. So juxtapose against that. Misconceptions of of our God, that God is grumpy. I want to bring you to this, a resounding conclusion, which is the fact that God is happy. Look again at verse 11 of our text. Paul is writing and he says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which which is committed to my trust. That word blessed there can actually mean it equates to happy. The glorious gospel of the happy God. That same word occurs 49 other times in your New Testament. Most notably in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is going through the Beatitudes. Happy are they who are persecuted and so on and so forth. I think that is significant. It's always significant the wording of your Bibles considering the context in which they were written. Timothy is only just beginning his ministerial work at the church of Ephesus. He is surrounded by many uh, false teachers and people who would uh, choose to disparage his ministry. They were leaving the church. And in fact, in verse 19, Paul says that they were making shipwreck of the faith. Look at verse 19. Paul encourages him to hold faith And having in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. There are many who are forsaking the faith. They are disparaging Timothy to the church. And they're discounting the gospel. Yet Paul is writing according to the glorious gospel of the happy God. 
How can God be happy in these sorts of times? With the rough days ahead in Timothy's ministry. And we might ask ourselves the same question. How can God be happy in our times? When there's so much falsehood being spoken in the church. When there's so much um, uh, uh, falseness being presented from pulpits. How can God be happy? Or do we still have a happy God? I believe yes. And he's happy in several ways. First of all. God is glad in himself. Think about that. God is glad in and of himself. Or think about this. God doesn't need you to be happy. Have you thought about that? God is not just waiting on pins and needles to make sure that we obey. And that's what makes him happy. God is happy in and of himself. He wasn't lonely before creation. And that's why he made man. He wasn't feeling sad because he didn't have someone to talk to. The the Trinity, as we learn from our scriptures, is a a holy fellowship of divine gladness. Gladness, as we learn later in 1 Peter, that is unspeakable. Peter says that in 1 Timothy 1.8. It is joy that is unspeakable or inexpressible. He can't even find the words to describe the joy that the Godhead enjoys. Look at quickly for me. John chapter 17 in verse 20. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden. And look at what he is talking about here. He refers to the joy that is in the trinity between God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Look at John 20, or excuse me, John 17:20. Jesus says, "Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me." And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, and that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and and as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of Of the world. He's talking to his father. And you can see. Just in his words. And expressions that he is giving. That they are perfectly satisfied. Father, son and Holy Spirit. God is happy in and of himself. He is full of joy. But even more greater than that. I think one of the most marvelous facts of the gospel. Is this. That God is a happy God. Who seeks to share his happiness. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25. And look at this quick verse with me. Matthew 25. I know I'm taking you to some places all over the word. But I hope you see this. Matthew 25, 23. Jesus says, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. 
This is what the gospel gives to us. The cross is what welcomes all those who believe in its salvation power into the everlasting happiness of heaven. That's what it ushers you into. That's what Jesus will say when he welcomes us into glory. Enter thou into the joy that is me. (laughs) Welcome into my gladness. That's really what this verse is saying. Enter into my gladness. And this is what God in Jesus Christ is looking to share with us. And that leads me to the second thing. Not only is God glad in himself. He is also glorified in his son. God is happy with you because his law has been satisfied in his son Jesus Christ. And the demand for righteousness has already been fulfilled in his son Jesus Christ. All of that work is done. All of that work is finished. Your heavenly Father is glorified and blessed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is His work that makes our Father happy, not ours. It is the Son's work that makes our Father blessed and glorified. Look back again, if you can flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That is such a reason why Paul says at the very beginning of the letter that Jesus Christ is his hope. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of, our sa- of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He is his hope because he knows that this Jesus Christ died for his sins. God died so that our joy uh, might be full. He says later on in John 15. God died so that God's own joy, His own happiness might be ours. And like we said in Matthew 25, that we might share in it forever, for eternity. Share in the everlasting happiness of heaven. That's what makes this gospel, this good news so everlastingly good. Is that we get to share in God's Eternal happiness. And what's even more amazing than that. Is the fact that God's desire is to share his happiness with sinners. (laughs) Have you thought about that? That God desires to share his happiness. Not with the angels who have never fallen, never betrayed him. But with sinners who constantly fail and fall. And he says, those are the people I want to spend eternity with. Those are the people I want to welcome into my blessedness. You know, I, before I got into the ministry, I used to work a job at Panera Bread. Back in South Carolina when I was in college. Working that job, I would occasionally have to work on Sundays. And that's just part of the, uh, the deal, I guess you can say. I would work on the Sunday morning shift really early and work through lunch and then get to go home. What I always found interesting and what I also found sad was the fact that oftentimes the people that I knew coming, were coming from church were often the worst patrons of Panera Bread. Sad to say. I don't know what it was, but they were coming from church. Perhaps they were stressed because their kids were late for a nap or whatever. I don't know. But they would come in and they were just very indignant. They were very uh, belligerent with what they were ordering. And if we got one minuscule thing wrong, it was uh, not very nice. (laughs) Um, 
And it always saddened me because I was a Christian, of course, working in that Panera Bread uh, store, and my fellow co-workers knew who I was. I was a, a PK, pastor's kid, a Christian, working in this place. They knew who uh, I was. They knew I was a Christian. And they were always like, if that's what church is, I don't want to be a part of it, which saddened me. And it has always... I don't know, confused me about the reasons why many times Christians are unhappy people. And I think think sometimes the confusion regarding uh, uh, the the, the bulk of our unhappiness, I think, stems from a confusion regarding the end times. You know, you can, maybe you've heard this before, I don't know, but... uh, I think sometimes we think that uh, heaven is filled with this long line of Christians who are going to come up to this big giant judge's desk. And when we get there, we're going to state our name. And God is going to pull out a DVD. And he's going to put it in a DVD player. And there's going to be a giant IMAX screen behind him. And it's going to play all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of the things we have said, all of the things that we didn't say. All of those thoughts about people that we thought that we thought never would come back and haunt us again. They're going to be displayed for all of the redeemed to see. I got to tell you, if that's what's going to happen, I don't really want to be there. (laughs) But I have good news for you, church, because that's not what's going to happen. I kind of imagine heaven like this. When we get there, there will be a line. But instead of a big judge's desk, there's going to be a small little accountant's table. And Jesus is going to be sitting behind it. And we state our name. He's going to open up a filing cabinet. He's going to ruffle through and find our file. And when he opens it, it's going to be dripping with blood. It's going to be dripping with blood. And on the front of it is going to be stamped, pardoned, approved, Forgiven, no condemnation, paid in full because Jesus Christ's blood has done that for you. When you get to heaven, you're not going to give an account of what you have done. You're going to give an account of what Jesus has done. And when your file is opened, your record is going to be clean because Jesus has given you his record. Jesus has given you his righteousness. This is the glorious gospel of the happy God. Why? Because 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. This is your hope. This is what can make us blessed and happy is the fact that if you are in Christ, you, God can't be anything other than happy with you. Because Jesus, his son, has swallowed and subsumed all of the wrath for your sin. He has taken it all. He has borne it all. And he has died for it all. Your sin, as it says in Micah chapter 7, was cast into the depths of the sea. Or later on in Psalm 103, your sin was separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Or as it says in Isaiah 43, your sin will be remembered no longer. Because of what Jesus has done. Because of what the Son of God did for you. This is God, your happy father. But you might be thinking, okay, so how does that affect me on a daily basis? How does this change my life? 
I understand this concerns my heavenly standing, but what about my earthly struggles? Is God still happy with me when I fall? You may be curious about that. Well, I'm glad you asked. I only have a few more minutes, but lastly, God is glad in himself. He is glorified in his son, but he is also grieved in our sin. Now this also leads to the happy fatherhood of God. And I want to show you how. Because Paul in verse 11 back in our text. He exalts this gospel of the happy God. But notice what precedes this exaltation. He goes through this list of what he says at the end. Is not contrary to sound doctrine. He says knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous man. But for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and for sinners. For unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, or we might even go on to say that is not according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Those things Paul is saying. Are not according to this gospel. And he's saying basically this. That the effect of this happy gospel. Changes you. The effect of this happy gospel. Is that it transforms you. Paul even goes on to say that. He says look at verse 12. And I thank God. Or excuse me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry. Who was before. A blasphemer and a persecutor and an injurious. But I obtained mercy. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. God changed him. God fundamentally altered Paul's life to where before he was ravaging the church as it says in Acts. Now he is coming alongside the church and hoping and helping it be built up. God changed his life. And now he is encouraging this young man Timothy to keep on in this warfare for this faith. Look again at verse uh, 18. Paul now, describing this glorious gospel of the happy God that saves sinners, he says this, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. What is he warring against, you think? What is he fighting against? I would say this, that he is warring against himself. Timothy is being encouraged, never believe in yourself, believe in this sovereign savior king. Timothy's fight was in opposition to his own heart, which Paul knew was exactly like his, which was uh, marred with sin, but was yet changed by this happy God that saves sinners. Therefore, this warfare was a war for belief. And that, we might say, is the essence of all sin. Did you know that? The essence of all sin is a disbelief in God. It's a temptation to, to, to disbelieve that God has your best interests in mind. This is what has been from the beginning. From Eden till now, the sin has been, you will be like a God. 
Remember, that's what Satan tempts Adam and Eve with in the garden. He says, here, take this. This will make you like a god. This will make you have all the happiness that you want. And so, therefore, mankind ever since has been zealous after the idea that he can make a better god than God can. That he can create his own happiness. He doesn't need God in his life to rule him. He doesn't need God in his life to overwhelm him. He can be his own God. He can create his own satisfaction. His own happiness. That's what sin is. It's the intense pursuit after self-sufficiency and self-indulgence. And it's a displacement of God's rightful place as that eternal king. And apart from God the Son taking the cross on our behalf, we would feel all the wrath for that violent displacement of God's created order. We would feel all of the wrath and anger and vitriol for our sin, but for this glorious gospel of the blessed God, which announces to us the happy news that Christ has taken that wrath onto himself, which is where we come to this glorious word, grieve. Turn with me to, quickly, as I close, Ephesians chapter 4. We have been expounding this glorious news that God is happy. But you might have been thinking about this verse. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Where Paul says elsewhere to another church. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grieve here means to make sorrowful or to affect with sadness or to cause grief. And this is very, the very effect of our sin. The very effect of our sin is that God is grieved that we would think that anything other than himself can completely satisfy us. That is what God is grieved by. He's grieved by the fact that we would make a mockery of what his son did by reverting back to that which his son died for. He's grieved by the fact that we think that we can make better gods than he is for us. But such is our motivation That if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if you believe that God is your Savior, you never again will feel the wrath of God. You can only feel His grief and His grace. The wrath of God has been taken away from you forever. He's grieved in your sin, but He is glorified in His Son, and He is glad in Himself. He is the happy Father. This is our motivation. We aren't uh, forced into Christian service by some dictatorial, tyrannical God where we are just afraid of messing up. And that's why we are serving Him. No, we serve a happy Father. A happy, loving Father who wants to share His happiness with us. This is the glorious gospel of the happy fatherhood of God. It's as the late Jerry Bridges says, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That's the Christian life. 
Grieving God, yes, perhaps when we sin, but glorified in His Son, and we can revel in that news. The news of a happy Father. The news that the eternal, immortal, immortal and invisible Savior King is on the throne for us right now. And He reigns forever. Let us pray.